helpful to to begin this. Uh, if you turn in your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 7, and while you're flipping there, while you're turning there, uh, I know that most everybody in here is probably familiar with uh, the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, right? Um, you'd say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Okay, how many of y'all are curious what life is like in heaven? Am I curious at all? Those of you who aren't raising your hands, I bet you are. Um, and if you're not now, you will be one day. <laughs> um, that you, we're curious about what life is, is like in heaven. Um, and this curiosity has spawned in, in modern culture. People writing books that ought not be written. Um, some of those books that ought not be written are these books where someone purportedly uh, dies for a minute and then goes to heaven and then comes back and makes millions of dollars telling people what it was like only a few months later after all the millions have been earned for the, the kid's dad to be like, oh, I'm just kidding, that didn't actually happen. And it was like, well, what do we do? And I said, well, you know, there is actually a book that tells us what we need to know about what life is like in heaven. And I'm pretty sure everybody in here, even if you don't own one, even if you didn't bring it with you, within arm's reach, there is a copy of said book that tells you what things are like in heaven. And as curious as we are about what things are like in heaven, there is actually doctrinal benefit. There is faith benefit to knowing certain things about what life is like in heaven. Because when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. How? As it is in heaven. So if we know certain things about what life is like in heaven, then we as Christians, through the power of the Holy Spirit, should make it our mission, should make it our goal to live as heavenly lives here as we can. Now, we can't make everything else around us heaven because we just don't have that power. But, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live to the best of our fallen human ability right now as the Spirit empowers us. We can live with the intent that I am going to obey God now the same way I will when I'm in heaven. So when we see in Scripture what heaven looks like, we should perk our ears up. We should look closely. We should pay attention because that gives us a hint of the type of life we should be leading now. The way we should view the world now. The way we should view God's kingdom now. Because we pray, every time we pray that, that God's kingdom would come and His will would be done here the same way it is there. So we have one of those instances in our uh, sermon series through Revelation this morning. And that's in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 17. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word, we're going to read those verses and then we'll, we'll pick them apart and see what we can learn from them. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, 
of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Father, I pray as we study this passage that you will help us to see what heaven is like and therefore help us to see through the power of your Holy Spirit what we should endeavor for for the church on earth to be like. In Jesus' name, amen. You can sit down. You can be seated. So I titled the sermon this morning, How the Saints Went Marching In, partly because I thought it was a fun title, and partly because I think it communicates what we're trying to, what we're trying to learn from this passage, because in this passage, the first thing you see is that there is a large multitude of people. And John wants to know about these people. The elder asks him, who are these people, and how did they get here? So since the saints have very obviously already marched in in this passage, I want to know how they went marching in. I want to know how they got there. I want to know what their their passage was, what their pathway was like, how they arrived. And then I want to know what it's like now that they're there. So I want to split this passage up into into three points, which is a perfect Baptist sermon. Uh, (laughs) I want to split this passage up into three divisions, and I want us in the first two to look at how they didn't get there. Things that did not qualify these saints for entry into heaven. And then finally, I want to look at the one qualification that did fit them for heaven. So first, I want us to look at verses 9 through 11 and see... Quite clearly, that neither race, nationality, nor language produce saints. Race, nationality, and language do not produce saints. Look at verse 9. After these things I looked. After what things? Well, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7. Um, In chapter 7, the the very last thing that we looked at, if you've been with us, is we see um, the ceiling of 144,000, I'm going to call them this morning, super missionaries from the nation of Israel. And I know that these are ethnic Jews. These are genetically, ethnically Jewish people because I'm given their tribal alignment in in chapter 7, verses 5 through 8. So these are Jews. They're a very specifically numbered group of Jews. So after this specific numbering of these Jews who are still functioning as missionaries on earth in, in, in this passage... John says he looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. So John knew how many missionaries there were in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 7, but he has no idea how many people are in this crowd because he says it's beyond counting. It's a number large enough that no one could number it. And he says 
They are of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. And they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The last group was easily numbered. This group is impossible to number. The last group was entirely Jewish, and this group is a cross-section of the human race. That group, the Jewish group of missionaries, was on earth. This group is before the throne and before the Lamb in heaven. And John says they are, continuing on in the text, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. This is celebratory attire. And this, they're waving around palm branches. This is a very uh, kind of ancient way. Uh, if you remember the triumphal entry, when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, what were they doing? They're waving the palm branches and saying, uh, uh, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. That They're praising Jesus as He comes in and they're throwing their garments in the road in front of Him so that he can, he, the, the colt that He's on, the, the donkey, can, can walk into Jerusalem. Uh, that this, is, this is a celebratory atmosphere. That they're wearing white robes and they're wearing palm branches and they're crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God. Our God. Now what's this group made up of? What did we just see? All nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. So let's ask some questions. How does John know what they're saying. Is John multilingual? I don't know. I don't know. Did he just so happen to be standing next to the group of people that spoke the language that he understood? Or is maybe there something different about heaven? They still have different languages. I know they have different languages because John said they did. I know they're of different nations because John said they were. Somehow he could tell. I know they were of different tribes because somehow he could tell. I know they were of different peoples or races because somehow John could tell. That there seems to be this diversity in which people are still different in heaven. People apparently still speak English and French and Spanish and Hebrew and Russian and all these different languages. And yet, John says, they were crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Even though they're all different nations, tribes, peoples, and languages, and apparently still are, John seems to be able to understand them. Isn't that interesting? And they all have the same message. And their message is that they all have the same salvation from the same God. That there seems to be a unifying factor that has nothing to do with anything earthly whatsoever. They don't care what nation they were from on earth. They don't care what color their skin was on earth and apparently still is now. They don't care what tribe they were part of on earth and apparently still are part of now. 
It doesn't matter what language they spoke on earth because even if they are still speaking it now, they can all speak together and everyone seems to understand them. John sees them together like this. And then all the angels, in verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. What does Amen mean? We say this, amen is one of those words that we say in church and we say in prayer all the time, but we never really take the time to, to define. It's, it's, it's a word that means it's agreement. Yes. Yes. I'm with you. So the angels, who by the way, cannot speak of salvation themselves. No angel has ever been saved. Christ did not die for angels. They have not ever experienced salvation. The angels can't say our salvation was purchased by the Lamb, but they can say, yes, amen, yours was. That God did that for you, and it was wondrous, and it was amazing. The angels stand around the throne, they say, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power and might, be to our God forever and ever, amen. Rather than focusing on the divisions between the humans, John draws a brighter line between this giant, innumerable melting pot of humanity and the angels. That's the only division he draws. That humans can all say one thing, and the angels can say one thing, but that's the difference. There is no perceived difference or division over here. So, John takes the time to note that heaven separates humans from angels, but heaven does not separate humans from humans. The angels agree with the humans, but they can't sing with them because they have no experiential knowledge of salvation. So how do we apply this? Two ways. First, I want us to see that there is no exclusive ethnic, linguistic, or national admittance into heaven. Y'all, if you think heaven is going to be made up solely of people who look like the folks in this room and sound like the folks in this room and dress like the folks in this room, we are all going to be shocked if that's what you think it's going to be like. First off, it says they're wearing white robes and palm branches. Does this look like a white robe and palm branches to you? What about what you're wearing? Any of that? White robe, palm branches? No. Apparently, the party attire in heaven is provided by the host. Y'all, right now in this room, I look out and I see 100% Anglo attendance. Heaven's not going to be like that, y'all. In fact, if you want to go on Scripture, if there was ever any race that might have thought they had an exclusive claim on heaven, who might it have been? The Jews! And the majority of the New Testament is God trying to get them to figure out, y'all, heaven's a bigger world than just y'all. That's very difficult for them to understand. But Jesus went through having a conversation with Peter via vision to say, hey man, you got to go into Cornelius' house. But Jesus, he's a Gentile. He's unclean. He's nothing like me. He touches things I don't touch. He eats things I don't eat. He dresses ways I don't dress. He speaks a way I don't speak. 
He's an uncircumcised Gentile. I don't want anything. I've never defiled myself. Acts 10, verse 28 and then 34 and 35. Jesus straightened Peter out. So Peter goes to Cornelius' house. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is. Read, you know that the common Jewish understanding of the law is that I should have nothing to do with you. You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company or go with one or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Then Peter opened his mouth and said in verse 34, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. Guys, if you have a next door neighbor with the same language, citizenship, and nationality as you who does not know Jesus Christ, you have more in common with a Somali herder who knows Jesus than you do with your next door neighbor. Are you kidding? I don't even, I can't speak Somali. I don't know what it's like to live there. I'm not Somalian. I don't, I'm not, I don't have a tribe. I'm American. He's African. I speak English. He speaks a different language. I live this way. He lives that way. And you know what? If both of you know Jesus, you'll both be standing in heaven one day when someone who looks, sounds, uh, has the same citizenship as you, maybe works in a cubicle next to you, someone who has rejected Christ, you will spend 10,000 years with the Somali and you will never see that person again. There is no exclusive linguistic or national or ethnic admittance into heaven. Just because you are from a certain place or look a certain way or sound a certain way, that does not guarantee that heaven belongs to you. Let me put it a different way. If only a certain type of human were in heaven, we would see that here, wouldn't we? John would have told us. But that's not what he told us, is it? He told us it's of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Now when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is how? So anything that is in heaven is that way because God wills it to be that way. So if God wills heaven to be that way, a place where people are distinct where they are different. There are different languages. There are different nations. There are different tribes. There are different peoples and races. There are all kinds of differences. They are still there in heaven, but there is no division or difference between them as far as God's people are concerned. If that's the way it is in heaven, shouldn't that be the way we do it here? Well, Josh, you just don't understand. I love them. I just feel like they should be in their place and we should be in ours. What would it be like if Jesus said that about His house? Well, Josh, you've got to understand, I love you, but I'm Israeli. And you're a pasty white American. It's not that I don't love you. I just think you should be in someone else's house and not mine. That's not what heaven's like, y'all. And if heaven is, it preserves all of the beauty 
of the differences and the diversities and the distinctions of the way that God has created this beautiful artwork that is humanity. If God doesn't see any reason to divide or differentiate because of that, then why on earth would we? So that's the first application. There is no exclusive admittance into heaven. And there is also no automatic admittance into heaven because of uh, entrance, uh, because of being part of a particular nation or tribe. But Paul dealt with this in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. That Have you ever heard the phrase, America is a Christian nation? That's dangerous for us as a church, and let me explain why. Because if, if, if that phrase is misused, and we use it in the wrong way, that America is a Christian nation, then we run the risk of people thinking that because America is a Christian nation, if you're an American, therefore you are a Christian. That is not the case. You can most definitely be an American and not be a Christian. Christianity is not bound up in your American citizenship. God is not going to look down the... He's not going to look for your social security number in the Lamb's Book of Life, okay? That's that's not what He's going to do. That being a Christian is not bound up in your American citizenship. It has to do with whether or not you have trusted Christ. You, personally. Regardless of nation, tribe, people, or tongue. What have you done with Jesus? There's no automatic there. And then finally, Galatians 3.28 sum this up. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. All that verse means is, y'all, everybody that's going to get saved is going to get saved the same way. If you get saved, you get saved because of Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross for you. I don't care if you get saved here in uh, piano and organ. I don't care if you get saved here in drums, guitars, and smoke machines. I don't care if you get saved sitting in a pew or sitting in a chair. I don't care if you get saved sitting in a church that's all one race. I don't care if you get saved sitting in a church that's all a different race. I don't care if you get saved sitting in a church that's a billion different races in one room. I don't care if you get saved here in English language. I don't care if you get saved here in the Spanish language. I don't care if you get saved here in Portuguese. There is one gospel, there is one Messiah, there was one cross, and it's good. It's a, it's a one-size-fits-all cross. So, uh, there, there is, your race, nationality, or language, y'all, that doesn't produce saints. You can't bank on any of that. More often than not, when you start banking on those things, you start acting not like a saint. That, 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 that's a dangerous road to go down. And it's a very unbiblical one. Um, so, uh, race, nationality, and language do not produce saints. Second, I want us to see that earthly suffering and poverty do not produce saints. In verse 13 uh, of this same passage, you can see uh, one of the elders answered saying to me, this is John, 
Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And John, this John says, and I said to him, Sir, you know. John looks over at this elder like, why are you asking me? You're the one that lives here. I'm just visiting right now. Why are you asking me what's going on here? Why are you asking me who these people are? It's very obvious you know who they are and I don't. So, sir, you know. Why don't you tell me? So the elder says to him, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The elder tells us clearly and explicitly, this particular crowd that you see right here, this is not the saved of all generations. This is not the totality of the church in this passage. These are people who have died either because of or in the midst of all of the judgments that you see in the book of Revelation up through this passage. That should stop and give you pause that enough people have died up to this point in the book that John says there's no way anybody can count them. Okay? But these are the Christians that got saved in the middle of that. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If the elder talking to John had wanted to say, these are those who came out of the great tribulation and they're here because they'd suffered enough and God just thought they needed a break. He could have said that. But do you know what the, the unspoken truth is in this verse? These are those who came out of the great tribulation who had washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. There are some of those who came out of the great tribulation who rejected the cross and the blood of the Lamb. They are not in this crowd. They suffered the same. They all experienced the same famine. They all experienced the same wars. They all experienced the same evil dictator. They all experienced the same cosmic disturbances, the earthquakes. They all experienced the same things. But some of them trusted Christ and some of them did not. If the suffering had been the reason that they were admitted into heaven, all of them would have been here. But all of them are not there. Scripture never makes the promise that just because there is suffering in this life, heaven is guaranteed in the next. It does say that those who are are poor or suffer have somewhat of a leg up in trusting Christ because it's almost impossible for them to trust in themselves. This is not on your handout, but Matthew 19, 23-24, Jesus said to His disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that the case? Well, it's because if you've got a wealth of earthly resources, it's very rare for you to feel like you've got to just trust God for your next meal. Because you just go to the store and buy it. It's not difficult. But the poor, it is difficult. They don't know when they're going to get their next meal. They don't know where it's going to come from. They don't know if they're safe. They, they are completely familiar with noticing their vulnerability and their weakness and their need for provision. So that gives them a leg up in trusting God. But a leg up is not automatic. I say this because y'all pastorally sometimes it can get very difficult for me because we make assumptions emotionally that just because someone suffers on this earth, we assume that 
Heaven is where they went when they left it. That's not true. Your suffering is an opportunity. Your suffering is an opportunity for you to look at God and say, I'm broken. I realize now I have nothing. I brought nothing with me into this world. I can take nothing out. I see firsthand my weakness, my need, my nothingness. And God, You are all I have left. So God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, save me. Even if You don't save me from earthly suffering, Jesus, You can save me and You can guarantee me a life to come. Jesus, forgive me. That's how one enters heaven. Not by reaching a certain level of suffering on this earth. That nowhere in Scripture does it say suffering makes sin less of an offense to God. In fact, Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, says, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Listen to this. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? So the peril of riches. I've done all this for myself. I don't need to thank God for anything. Or lest I be poor and steal. And God say that's okay because I really needed it. Is that what Scripture says? No, it says, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because guys, whether or not you get heaven when this life is over has nothing to do with the amount of suffering that you endured while you were here. It has to do with the amount of suffering Jesus endured on your behalf and what you decided to do with that. I promise you, however much suffering you have endured, Jesus has endured more on your behalf. And if you were to stand in front of God and say, but God, what about all of the suffering? What about everything I endured? And Jesus would respond by saying, what about the suffering I endured for you that you did not want? Do you see these holes? Do you see this scar? I suffered for you. What did you do with it? Earthly suffering does not guarantee heaven. Jesus guarantees heaven. So, if nationality or tribe or race or tongue or poverty or suffering does not guarantee heaven, what does? The blood of Jesus does. Last point. The blood of Jesus produces saints. Look at the first word in verse 15. What does it say? What's the first word in verse 15? Therefore. Classic Bible study technique. Some of y'all know what I'm about to say. Anytime you see the word therefore, what do you need to do? Go back and see what the therefore is there for. Therefore always tells you that what you're reading is connected immediately to the passage that came before it. So, if John says, therefore they're before the throne of God, what is it that qualifies them to be before the throne of God? He said, they came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
If you want to be before the throne of God, serving Him day and night in His temple, and, uh, and the one who's sitting on the throne dwelling among you, there is one way to arrive there. It is not to be of a particular nation. It is not to speak a particular tongue. It is not to endure enough suffering on this life that you qualify for heaven in the next. It is to wash your robe white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how you get there. That's the only way. And listen to what heaven is like for them and why it's like this. First off, they're before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. Y'all, heaven is not, we're not going to sit on little clouds with harps as fat little babies with wings. Okay? I don't know where that came from, but it's not in the Bible. We're not going to do that. The one who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Do you know what this doesn't say anything about? It doesn't say, and they were overjoyed to get to heaven because grandma and grandpa gave them a hug. It doesn't say they were overjoyed to get to heaven because their tractor finally worked. It doesn't say they were overjoyed to get to heaven because little Fido, the dog that they lost when they were eight, ran up and, and licked their heels when they got there. That far too often we define heaven by earth. And I'm not minimizing the fact that those who have known Christ before us and have gone on to be with Him are here, are, are there cheering us on. Because Hebrews tells us we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. That they're looking down and, and they see the fight that we still have to fight and they're cheering, us, they're cheering us on, but they're not what makes heaven heaven. If I got to heaven and my nanny was there, but Jesus wasn't, it's not heaven. If I get to heaven and my golden retriever from when I was a kid is there. And y'all, by the way, pets are not people. That, that no, I'm, I'm making an illustration. If I were to get there and find my golden retriever from when I was a kid, but Jesus is not there, it's not heaven. If I get to heaven and everything works and nothing is broken, but Jesus is not there, it's not heaven. What makes heaven heaven? Jesus is there. That I'll be in His presence. He will dwell with me. That I will serve Him day and night in His temple. That, yes, they'll neither hunger nor thirst anymore. The sun won't strike them, nor any heat. Why? For the Lamb who's in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And who will wipe away every tear from their eyes? God will. Y'all, Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. This is why I do not understand folks wanting heaven but not wanting Jesus. Did y'all know that there are some things that God can't do? Do you know this? There's some things God can't do. And some of y'all, I heard you, some of y'all said God can't lie. Correct. It would be a violation of His character. But God also cannot do things that are logically impossible. God cannot create a married bachelor. Because a bachelor, by definition, is not married. There's no such thing as a married bachelor. If he's married, he's not a bachelor anymore. It's logically impossible. Do you know that God cannot also not give you heaven apart from himself? 
Well, that seems exclusive. That, that seems really bigoted and rude. Just because I don't want to believe in Jesus, God's going to throw me in hell and keep heaven from me? No, you don't understand. When you say you don't want Jesus, you just said you don't want heaven. Jesus is heaven. You cannot want one and not the other. Guys, if you had everything you ever wanted and Jesus wasn't there, that's hell. That's hell. Because everything you have that you think is good is only good insofar as it reflects Jesus. When you take Jesus out of it, what you're left with is hell. You cannot have heaven without Jesus because there is no such thing as heaven without Jesus. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 1 John 5.11 and 12, This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Do you have the Son? Do you want to have life? Because this is what Scripture says.